Okay, the Lord will not forsake his people, Psalm 94. O Lord, God of vengeance, O God of vengeance, shine forth. Rise up, O judge of the earth. Repay to the proud what they deserve. O Lord, how long shall the wicked, how long shall the wicked exult? They pour out their arrogant words. All the evildoers boast. They crush your people, O Lord, and afflict your heritage. They kill the widow and the sojourner and murder the fatherless. And they say, the Lord does not see. The God of Jacob does not perceive. Understand, O dullest of the people. Fools, when will you be wise? He who planted the ear, does he not hear? He who formed the eye, does he not see? He who disciplines the nations, does he not rebuke? He who teaches man knowledge, the Lord, knows the thoughts of man that they are but a breath. Blessed is the man whom you discipline, O Lord, and whom you teach of your out of your law to give him rest from days of trouble until a pit is dug for the wicked. For the Lord will not forsake his people. He will not abandon his heritage. For justice will return to the righteous, and all the upright in heart will follow it. Who rises up for me against the wicked? Who stands up for me against evildoers? If the Lord had not been my help, my soul would soon have lived in the land of silence. When I thought my foot slips, your steadfast love, O Lord, held me up. When the cares of my heart are many, your consolations cheer my soul. Can wicked rulers be allied with you, those who frame injustice by statute? They band together against the life of the righteous and condemn the innocent to death. But the Lord has become my stronghold and my God the rock of my refuge. He will bring back on them their iniquity and wipe them out for their wickedness. The Lord our God will wipe them out. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. And Paul Morgan, would you pray, please? Let's bow for prayer. Lord, as we read this psalm this morning, we are reminded of many things about who you are. That you're the one who formed us. You are the one who planted our ear and formed our eye. You are the one who disciplines. You are the one who teach. All knowledge comes from you. And we are blessed when you discipline us, O Lord. Even though our discipline is well earned, you bring blessing from that discipline. There is no God like you. There is no other. For all the other gods are not gods at all. They are imaginings of evil hearts. And how quick we are, Lord God, to set up our own little idols, our pet desires, our longings, that are not under the rule of your hand. So we ask you, Lord God, to forgive that iniquity. We ask you that you, in the might of your power, show us mercy. 
We thank you, Lord God, that you have given to us your grace, your mercy, and that you have given us the ability even to believe and understand. We're grateful to you, Lord God, for this word that teaches us in the way that we should go, without which we would have no knowledge of you, that you, by your self-disclosure, teach us all that we need to know and that we will spend eternity in your presence learning more and more about you and your majesty. What a great day that will be when we enter into your presence and enjoy the discovery of things we could not have imagined about your grandeur, your excellence, your sovereignty, and that we will spend the rest of eternity in your presence, never unsatisfied, but always hungering for more of who you are. I pray, Lord God, that in this day and hour, you would give us that kind of hunger here, a hunger for righteousness, a hunger for your word. These are gifts, Lord God, that we cry out to you for because there is no strength within us that can desire them except that that you give us. So, Lord, be honored and glorified by our worship this morning. Thank you that you have given us the desire to gather. Thank you that you are the God who has shown himself faithful. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen. Amen. Hear the message here. Morning, y'all. Let's bow. Thank you, Lord God, for giving us the gift of being able to come to church. So many people don't get to. I praise you, Lord, for your gift and ask you to paste this message on our hearts this morning so that we can take it with us all week and talk about it and pray about it. And I ask your blessing on us all today. And I thank you for your gift. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You may be seated. Pastor John, come in. Well, good morning, EBC. It's a privilege and a joy to be with you this morning. As uh, we were singing that, How Great Thou Art song. Uh, it reminded me of uh, our first trip up to Longmire. Longmire. <laughs> Paul made fun of me for the way I said that earlier this week. <clears throat> but we had the privilege of going to Longmire. We had some friends visit from Georgia and um, was able to just see the beauty of God's creation here and feel that cool breeze. You know, it's just such a beautiful thing and just such a wonderful uh, privilege to be able to sing those words with you this morning. Um, additionally, uh, with everything else that has been going on with, ev with everyone uh, this week, it seems, I also got a little bit sick. Um, and I think Friday night, um, yeah, I barely slept maybe an hour or two because I was up just sitting on the couch coughing so hard. Um, so if I sound a little raspy, that's why. But 
Uh, the Lord granted me some rest, and I am here uh, refreshed and um, thankful to be here with you. Uh, so this morning, we are picking back up in our series on Who is God? And sound booth, I've got a little bit of an echo. I don't know if we can fix that. And just by way of quick review, uh, so far we have looked at the aseity of God, that being that God is self-existent and self-sufficient. He exists necessarily. We saw that, that that is only logical, that if anything exists, then God must exist necessarily. God has always existed, and so there has never truly been a time in which complete nothingness, in the fullest sense of the words, was such. Though there was a time, before time, where only God was. And then, by the word of his power, he created everything out of nothing. He created ex nihilo. And then we consider the eternality of God, how God is the creator of the fabric of time itself, and he is therefore the Lord of time, and he is not bound by time. God dwells in eternity, as scripture tells us. He lives in a state of present eternality and is free as the Lord of time to work in time as he sees fit to do. And we also briefly touched on an important consequence of God's aseity and eternality, that being that he is immutable. God does not change. This is a necessary element of being eternal and perfect, which God is by necessity. Otherwise, he would not be God. And so God does not change in his being. And so, so far we have seen some amazing truths about God, haven't we? I mean, hearing those things alone should bring us to our knees willingly and ready to worship and follow and serve such a God. But there is so much more. And that is the goal of this series, to really look at the scriptures and consider who this God of the universe is and how these truths should shape our lives. And all of this, as it has been revealed to us by God through the scriptures alone. So this morning we will be considering the spirituality of God, the spirituality of God. So I invite you to turn your copy of God's word with me and turn to the gospel according to John in the fourth chapter, John chapter four, and that's page 1056 in your pew Bible. And if you're a visitor this morning and you don't own a Bible, we would love for you to feel free to keep that pew Bible as our gift to you. And there are also some welcome uh, notepads near the entrance that you can take as a gift. And there's also an information card that you can fill out and slip into the offering box. We would love the opportunity to reach out and follow up with you. So John chapter 4 and we will be considering a single statement within a verse as our main focus this morning. So let's read that as we begin to consider the spirituality of God. John chapter 4, verse 24, where God's inerrant, infallible, and sufficient word, which he has spoken to us here through the pen of the Apostle John, reads... 
God is spirit. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are the God of the universe who is seated on his throne. And Father, we thank you that you have condescended, that you have communicated to us marvelous truths about your own being and your word. And Father, that such a short statement can contain such profound truth because you are an infinite God. And so, Father, we thank you that you have decided to use the foolishness of preaching to bring about these truths and to implant them into the hearts of men. So we pray, Lord, that you would do so this morning. Father, that you would bless the preaching of your word by the Spirit working in our hearts to make us more like Christ. And Father, for those that may be here who do not know him, would you make yourself known to them this day? And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The 1600s Puritan preacher Stephen Charnock once said, If we could have thoughts of him as high and excellent as his nature, our conceptions must be as infinite as his nature. Close quote. What Sharnock is telling us there is that whatever thoughts we have of God, they can only reach so far in exalting the truths of him because our thoughts are but finite. Whatever truths have been revealed to us by God are such and in such a way that they can be comprehended by our finite minds. But God is everlasting. And the realities of his glorious nature are likewise everlasting and infinite. Because, but because we are finite, our understanding of God can only reach so far. And so whatever high and glorious thoughts we could possibly conceive in our minds about God, he is infinitely more glorious still. In Job 11, verses 7 through 9, Zophar rightly says to Job, Can you find out the deep things of God? Can you find out the limits of the Almighty? It is higher than the heavens. What can you do? Deeper than Sheol, what can you know? Its measure is longer than the earth and broader than the sea. And in 1 Corinthians 2, verses 10 and 11, we read, The Spirit searches everything. Even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also, no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. This God that we serve has made certain truths about himself known to us. He has stooped down into our world 
and level and has communicated infinite truths to finite minds. The Lord Jesus Christ, the one who is God in the flesh himself, reveals a deep truth about the very nature of God in this text. Jesus, who had the, abil the ability to search even the depths of God and comprehend the thoughts of God because he is God, reveals to us through the story of a encounter with a Samaritan woman that he is spirit. This eternal, immutable God that we serve is personally engaged in the affairs of his creation and desires to be intimately and affectionately known by his people. And so from these words of our Lord in our text this morning, we learn some marvelous truths about the being of God. And I have divided this text into two main headings, simplicity and omnipresence. Simplicity and omnipresence. So notice now our first heading, simplicity. We read, God is spirit. Here the Lord Jesus is giving us a truth that pertains to the very essence and being of God. God is spirit. And in theological terms, we refer to this doctrine as the spirituality of God. And there are some truths that are necessary elements of this truth that God is spirit. So I want us to consider two important aspects of God being spirit this morning. Number one, because God is spirit, God therefore is simple. Because God is spirit, he is therefore simple. <clears throat> now, for some of you, that may sound odd. How can God be simple? If we have already spoken in much philosophical language in the previous sermons to arrive at certain truths about God, how can God be simple when he is eternal, self-existing? But when I say that God is simple, I am not speaking of God as if he were simplistic or simple to understand even <clears throat> rather i'm speaking of god in metaphysical language i am referring to what is known as the doctrine of divine simplicity the doctrine of divine simplicity so first of all you might recall for example in luke 24 after jesus appears to the two disciples on the road to emmaus he then appears to the rest of the disciples in jerusalem and they are frightened when they see him. And Jesus says to them in Luke 29 or 24, 39, See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones, as you see that I have. A spirit does not have flesh and bones. Divine simplicity takes that to a greater conclusion. Flesh and bones are part of what makes up human beings. We are pretty dependent on those things. I mean, could we live without either of those completely? And that's quite a scary thought, isn't it? A living human with no bones or no flesh. Not a pretty picture. But as humans, we are made up of parts. And not just flesh and bones. We depend on so many things in order 
to properly function. In that sense, we are complex beings. There is a high level of complexity to us. We need a, we, we need a heart and all the veins and blood and oxygen and lungs and brain and other organs in order just to be. We are complex, but spirits are less complex. They are not made up of flesh and bones. Angels, for example, are intelligent, powerful spirit beings. But even they are complex in the sense that they are created beings that need certain components in order to be. But what the doctrine of divine simplicity teaches is that God is the purest of beings. God is simple in the sense <clears throat> that he is not made up of independent or even dependent parts that make up the whole. God is not part this and part this to make up this. God is fully and completely just God in his being. And what makes up God is not distinct from God. So God is a spirit. He has no body. He is incorporeal. He has no body, no shape, no substance, no matter, no parts that come together to make up God. Now, some of you may be thinking, but the Bible uses language uh, such as God has hands and feet and arms and mouth and eyes, etc. And is referred to as a he. So maybe God is male. Unless, of course, you read something like the book The Shack, which describes the father as an African-American woman. Uh, but needless to say, don't waste your time with something like The Shack. But yes, the Bible does describe God as having parts, but that is merely God using what we call anthropomorphic language. Anthropomorphic coming from the Greek word for human, anthropos, and for form, morphos. And so it's language that takes on the form of human. It is language that God uses to communicate truths about himself to us, his creatures, in a stooping down to our level in order for us to be able to understand God. But also let me say this. While God does not have a male body because he has no body because he is spirit, he has chosen to reveal himself to us as a father and as using male pronouns. And I think it's almost over a thousand times or about a thousand times in the New Testament alone, where he is referred to in male pronouns. And even in verses where he is described as, for example, loving or caring like a mother, it is like a mother, not saying that he is a mother. God has chosen to reveal himself to us in the masculine form. God is a he in that sense. And so he is a he, but he has no body because he is spirit. Now, naturally, you might also be asking yourself, 
But what about those times when he has appeared to others in the form of a human? So, for example, in Genesis 18, verses 1 and 2, we read of such an example where God appears to Abraham. And we read, And the Lord, and that's capital L-O-R-D, meaning Yahweh, so God, appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. He lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth. Then he prepares a meal for them. And then we read in verse 8, And he stood by them under the tree while they ate. So this is an appearance of God, along with two angels, whom you might recall uh, leave this encounter with Abraham and head towards Sodom, at which point God brings judgment upon Sodom and Gomorrah. But the interesting thing is that one of these three people was God himself in the form of a man. So how can that be? Well, it's basically anthropomorphism and vision instead of language. But here is what we have to affirm. God in the form of flesh appeared to Abraham, and Abraham saw him face to face. And God in this form even ate and probably digested. I mean, we aren't told that it was a ghost-like figure, right? He ate. And so as he picked up the cup of milk that Abraham brought him, we aren't told that he tipped that cup to take a swig and it just passed and spilled through onto Abraham's oriental antique Persian rug. <clears throat> right? So here's where, we here's where we have to start thinking biblically through these questions. Because God is spirit. He has no body. But he appears in a body here in Genesis 18. Abraham sees God face to face. But then we are also told in certain scriptures like John 1.18, no one has ever seen God. Emphatic statement, no one has ever seen God. And then you have to wonder, so God coming in the person of Jesus wasn't the first time that he came in the flesh? Right? I mean, those are good and proper questions. But we have to be very careful about how we examine those. So let's start with John 1.18. No one has ever seen God. I think there are two ways in which we can properly exposit that text. The Apostle John could be saying no one has seen God, as in no one has ever seen God in his fullness of being, because it is impossible. He is, as 1 Timothy 1.17 says, the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God. Or as 1 Timothy 6, 15 and 16 says, He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the king of kings and lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, dwells in unapproachable light, and no one has ever seen nor can see. Now, quick side note here. Isn't it interesting how all these people who say 
that they have been to heaven and back, and heaven is for real or whatever, try to say that they have approached this unapproachable light and have seen this unseeable God. So yeah, be weary of any book or speaker who says that they have been to heaven and back. But back to our topic. When John says that no one has ever seen God, he could mean it in that sense, the fullness of his being, because he is invisible. He is spirit. And I think it is in that sense, for example, that we read in Exodus 33:20, God saying, you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. But a book earlier in Genesis 32 we read of Jacob wrestling with God. And then Jacob says in Genesis 32, 30. So Jacob called the name of the place Paniel saying, For I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. And so I think that verse in Exodus more properly speaks of God's glory. A fuller sense of his glory because in verse 11 of that chapter even in exodus it tells us that god had already spoken to moses face to face and so it is a manner of degree in that sense mortal man cannot see but a certain limited view of god's glory because in our present state any greater amount would literally destroy us but the beautiful thing in that regard is the promise that we have in 1 John 3, 2, which tells us, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And so I think that would be a proper understanding of what John means by saying, no one has ever seen God. But another proper understanding of that, I think, could also mean that no one has ever seen the Father because the Son is the one who has manifested into the world to make him known. And so the rest of John 1.18 says something to that effect. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Or as the King James reads, no man hath seen God at any time the only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, He hath declared Him. Now, Jesus Himself says in John fourteen seven, If you had known Me, you would have known My Father also. From now on you do know Him and have seen Him. And then in verse 9 says, Whoever has seen Me has seen the Father. And all of this because as Jesus continues to explain in John chapter 14, Verse 10, the Father dwells in him. And verse 11, he says, I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. So what John is saying when he says no one has seen God is that no one has ever seen the Father, no one has ever seen the Spirit, no one has ever seen the fullness of God's being, no one has ever seen God except through the Son. Jesus Christ. And so when we read of God appearing in the form of a man in the Old Testament, uh, those are called theophanies. It's uh, simply a word from 
a Greek word meaning appearance of God, theophany, appearance of God. And so as I mentioned earlier, it's like anthropomorphism, but envision the invisible, immortal, spiritual God appears in a form that we can comprehend by vision, even if that form is hard to comprehend, uh, such as a burning bush or a glory cloud or thunderstorm. But here's what we need to keep in mind. Uh, like I mentioned to you when we were speaking about God's eternality, God, though he is outside of time and not bound by time, is the Lord of time and works in time as he so chooses because he is the Lord of it. And likewise, he is the creator and Lord of matter and all physical existence. And so was the appearance in Genesis 18 the same as Jesus being born into this world? I don't think so. I think the scripture is pretty clear on the uniqueness of the coming of Christ, of his taking on of human flesh. 1 Timothy 3.16, he was manifest in the flesh. John 1.14, and the word became flesh and dwelt amongst us. Philippians 2, verses 5 through 8, Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. The Bible is clear that there has been nothing else like it. God coming in the flesh in Jesus was a unique instance. And so an appearance of God or theophany such as in Genesis 18 was a miraculous, temporary, physical manifestation where the Lord of matter appears by the use of matter temporarily in a miraculous way. Now, as far as theophanies goes, go, I would actually take it a step further. And I would fall into the camp that says that every theophany is actually a Christophany. And so I believe that because no one has ever seen God, except by the Son making Him known, I believe that when we read in Genesis 18 of Yahweh appearing to Abraham, that was actually the pre-incarnate Second person of the Trinity, God the Son. And so we just chased a quick little rabbit there to simply say that since God is spirit, he therefore has no body. But it was an important rabbit to chase, I think, because those are natural questions that may come to your mind as you read these scriptures and try to interpret the scriptures by the use of the scriptures. And that, by the way, is a primary hermeneutical principle called <clears throat> analogia scripturae, which says that the infallible rule of interpretation of scripture is the scripture itself. And so I hope that that little rabbit hole helped you to understand those scriptures better. But back to divine simplicity God is not made up of parts. God has no matter 
right? He is not like a car that needs all sorts of components to make it a car, or a working car for that matter. God has no parts, and so this doctrine also extends to his character and attributes. And this is where it can get a little confusing, and where we need to be really careful that we don't go beyond what is thoroughly implied by the Scriptures. But I believe we can say that God's character traits and attributes are also not parts of God, as if they were something separate from God that could potentially not be a part of God. Does that make sense? For example, uh, we read in First uh, John 4, 8, God is love. Now, is God just part love and part holy and part just? Because we tend to separate them in our minds in such a way that we can make them parts of God. But again, the scripture is not saying God has love. The scripture is saying God is love. Do you see that? There's a major difference there. And so the attributes of God aren't things that make up God or that can be taken away from or made distinct from God. God is love itself. God is power itself. God is wisdom himself. God is justice. God is goodness himself. Do you see that? God is spirit. All those are true 100% of the time. And God is 100% of those attributes. God is all of his attributes by simple virtue of his being God. Because he is simple. Because he is spirit. And so that is the doctrine of divine simplicity. And so that was the first necessary truth of God's being a spirit. And secondly, because God is spirit, here's our second heading this morning. Therefore, he is also omnipresent. Omnipresent. That's one word. O-M-N-I and present. Now, as we discuss the attributes of God uh, throughout this series, we will begin to speak of the omni-attributes. Omnipresent being the one under consideration at the moment. Omni is simply a Latin word meaning all. So omnipresent simply translates to God being all-present, or properly as everywhere-present. Because God has no parts, he is not corporeal, he is spirit, therefore he is everywhere present. Psalm 139, verses 7 through 10. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the utmost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. Jeremiah 23, verses 23 and 24. Am I a God at hand, declares the Lord, and not a God far away? Can a man hide himself in secret places so that I cannot see him, declares the Lord? Do I not fill heaven and earth, declares the Lord? And Solomon rightly proclaimed in 1 Kings eight twenty-seven, But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you, 
how much less this house that I have built. God is everywhere present. But there is another aspect to this omnipresence that we refer to as God's immensity. God's immensity. And the immensity of God is actually a disputed term. And so some theologians will define it differently than others. But another word that is attached to it in order to define it is ubiquity. Ubiquity. U-B-I-Q-U-I-T-Y. Ubiquity. And so God's omnipresence is ubiquitous, which literally means equal awareness or everywhere all. And in theology, because God is spirit, he is everywhere. It means that everywhere that God is, he is there in the fullness of his being. And so the fullness of God is present everywhere. That's what ubiquitous and immensity mean. God is present in the fullness of his being everywhere. And that truth has several implications. And I want to spend the rest of our time just considering two of those. The first of those implications is that God is everywhere. And not only knows when you sin, he sees you. He is there with you. The fullness of the Godhead is ever present. And when you sin, it is as if he is looking over your shoulder and under it and above it and around it and in front of it. He is everywhere. Proverbs 15.3 says, The eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch on the evil and the good. But here's the reality that is even more terrifying. For some reason, and I'm not even sure how we have gotten to this point, but we in today's American Christianity have diminished the doctrine of hell. We don't talk about it. We don't warn people about it as we should. And here's one of the main reasons for it, I think. We don't know it. But let me go about this by asking you a question. Is there anywhere that God is not present? You rightly and quickly say, no, of course. He is omnipresent. But what about hell? Is God ubiquitously present in hell? Is the immensity of God omnipresently in hell? The answer is a resounding yes. Yes, he is. Hell is hell because it is God himself in the fullness of his being who is there exacting the fullness of his wrath for all eternity on those who die as his enemies. Hebrews 10.31 says, It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And that is what happens in hell. You fall into the hands of the living God for eternity. Now some of you may be shocked by that statement. Because again, American Christianity has somehow come to portray God as the victor in heaven and Satan as the ruler in hell. But that is not biblical theology. 
So first, let's consider a verse that may be looked at at face value and make someone think, no, God is not in hell. Second Thessalonians chapter one, verses six through ten, we read. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at amongst all those who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. And so some may read that verse and say, they will suffer punishment away from the presence of the Lord. See, he's not going to be in hell. But friends, that's not what that verse means. Remember the hermeneutical principle I just mentioned. Scripture interprets Scripture. We have several verses that show us that the opposite is true. And so as we look at this verse, we must carefully examine it to understand it. And we'll look at the other verses that show the reality of uh, God being in hell in a second. But let me just explain what this text in First uh, Thessalonians means. First of all, the Greek word for presence there is the word for countenance or face. And with its use of the language of the glory of his might and in light of the rest of the scripture, it more accurately paints a picture of the royal courts of oriental kings and how only honored guests are admitted to the presence of the familial uh, presence of the king. Yeah, that is the sense of this verse. Those who suffer in hell will suffer away from the friendly and familial countenance of the king. They will not, however, be spared from the presence of God in his battle-ready, wrath-pouring countenance. And so now let me show you this truth based on the other scriptures. First of all, you have a number of them that show us that God is everywhere. He is omnipresent. There is nowhere that God cannot be. There is no limit to his presence. That alone should suffice and settle the argument. There is nowhere that God is not present. But listen to Matthew 10:28. And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. Who is that speaking of? God. Where is God that he can destroy both soul and body? In hell. Because again, that verse isn't talking about annihilationism. Because the scriptures teach that hell is an eternal punishment. There is no such thing as complete annihilation. So God is the one who punishes in hell. And that's what Jesus is saying in Matthew 10. But even more directly, Revelation 14. Revelation 14, verses 9 through 11, we read, And another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, 
poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night. These worshipers of the beast and its image and whoever receives the mark of its name forever and ever in the presence of the Lamb. God is the one who makes hell a terrifying hell. It is a terrifying thing, friends. This should compel us as Christians to warn people to flee the wrath that is to come, which is everlasting. But here's the other implication of the truth that God is omnipresent. To the one that is dead in their sins and trespasses, that reality should terrify them. But to us, who have been born again and saved from the wrath to come, though we still struggle with sin, this should be the greatest of comforts. Beloved, God is here. God is with you. And He isn't with me more than He is with you. His attention is not divided. He really does keep His promise that He is with you always, even to the ends of the age. Don't trust your feelings and emotions when you tell yourself that you don't feel His presence or you don't feel like He hears you or cares for you. Inform yourself with your theology through the Scriptures instead of your feelings. When you think to yourself that you don't feel His presence, remind yourself that the God of the universe is omnipresent, immense, ubiquitous, and infinite, and the fullness of the Godhead is present with you at that very moment in the fullness of His being. Ever watchful and attentive and caring for you. He sustains you. The very beating of your heart the breathing of your lungs should be more than sufficient proof to you that He is with you, sustaining you at every moment, keeping every fiber of your being within the palm of His omnipotent hand. And He is all His attributes, all together. So He's not just there sustaining you, but He is there with you as the all-powerful all-loving, all-wise, all-just, all-good, self-existing, self-sustaining, everywhere-present God. In the mundane of your daily life, and in the most unnerving, tempestuous trials that you will ever go through, your Good Shepherd is at hand. He is with you. And He is for you. And beloved, the most amazing thing about God's spirituality, simplicity, immensity, omnipresence, is that this incorporeal God 2,000 years ago took upon Himself corporal reality. The simple took upon a complex nature. The immense and omnipresent God localized Himself and limited himself in the person and body and human nature of the man Jesus of Nazareth. The second person of the Trinity 
in an act of pure humility, emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. He who knew no sin was made sin on our behalf so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Friends, if you have not surrendered your life to Christ and have not yet decided decided to follow this Jesus, what are you waiting for? Who else but he who sacrificed himself, who, who, was, who was of an infinite worth, who was a perfect man, could possibly stand in your place at the judgment throne? Today, he is present in spirit right now in this place, and he is willing to offer full pardon for your sins. Repent and believe in him. Trust in Christ for your salvation. Confess your sin to God and turn from it to Christ. And as for you, Christian, though he is away in body, Christ is here in spirit. He is with you. And he is in you. He is your friend, your comforter, your shepherd, ever with you and everywhere with you. You likewise trust in him. Keep trusting in him and keep entrusting yourself to him. There is no one better. He is our hope. He is our everlasting, ever-present God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you that you have condescended. And that you have given us such marvelous truths. And that you have worked great works in our hearts to even allow us to desire such truths. Father, we thank you for Christ. For his humility. For his love. For his death. For his resurrection. For his ascension. For his promise. That he is with us always. Even to the end of the age. Lord would you. Imprint those truths into our hearts. And sanctify us through them. For your glory and your honor. And we pray all this in Jesus name. Amen.